Today, we have the pleasure of meeting with Tad Callister. Tad needs little introduction to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Over the years, he's served as a general authority and a member of the Presidency of the Seventy and Sunday School General President. As an author, Tad has written The Infinite Atonement, The Inevitable Apostasy, A Case for the Book of Mormon, and Teaching with Power, which he co-authored with his wife. Today, we meet with him to discuss his most recent book, America's Destiny. If this episode has touched you and left you craving to hear more from Tad, I encourage you to join Tad on the Busy Latter-day Saint podcast, where he talks about his personal life and the importance of studying the scriptures. Now, here's Tad. Tad, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Just great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, We are here to talk about your book, America's Destiny, which I have read. It is a great book, and it just affirms everything that um, I believe and um, about this this great country. I I just, I, I have a flag outside our home, and when I see it, I just, I still get goosebumps. And honestly, I don't think I can actually um, sing our country's hymn without coming to tears. So um, it's, it's a, a great book to help, um, I think, help people understand what a great country this is. And um, I also want to mention, uh, you wrote a book with your wife called Teaching with Power. And uh, I think it's an extension, I feel, an extension of... Uh, teaching as the Savior teaches, and it's a, a great book. I suggest everyone to read it. That is a teacher in the church, which, in my opinion, is everybody, and um, we should all read that book. As I have read it, and um, as I give devotionals throughout the country, I, I quote from it quite often because you just you and your wife have a way of saying some things that just uh, really clarify what we need to do as teachers. And also want to mention the other book, which I have read and listened to. Um, it was The Infinite Atonement. And um, I want to thank you for that book. That is a great book, and it really helped me appreciate more the role of the atonement in my life. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. Um, I want to start off with an intro on the book called America's Destiny. And uh, by the way, I want people to know that uh, all the proceeds from the book go to Why I Love America uh, organization. Can you talk about that just for a minute? Yes, the Why I Love America organization is a nonprofit that was designed to uh, rekindle a spirit of patriotism here in America, to educate people on the Constitution and increase in awareness of God's hand in America. And we were instrumental in getting the Utah State Legislature to adopt uh, September as American Founders and Constitution Month. And in connection with that, had a number of patriotic devotionals and events uh, consistent with that legislation. Well, that's wonderful. I've never heard of the organization before. And honestly, is it mentioned in the book? No, it's not. Actually, it was created after the book. Oh, okay. Oh. Okay. I, I, I thought, how did I miss that in the book? 
All right. Um, I, there's an introduction here in the book, and I'm just going to read it. It's a, it's a paragraph, but I think it's a good a way to set the stage here. This book examines evidence of God's hand in discovery, establishment, and preservation of America as confirmed by many of our founding fathers, national leaders, and prophets of God. It challenges the accuracy of revisionist historians that demean Columbus and other national heroes, often without appropriate use of primary sources. It discusses the divine calling of the Founding Fathers and their beliefs that, number one, the effectiveness of the Declaration of of Independence and the Constitution is dependent on the morality of the people, and two, that the morality requires religion, and three, that religious Religion's purpose is to learn and live God's will. Um, this idea of revisionist and using primary sources, um, <laughs> I am amazed sometimes when these revisionists, I, I try to check their sources and it's somebody said who somebody said who somebody said. And uh, when I went to college, I, wasn't, I was told that that was not a primary source. Just for those that may not know, what is a primary source? Well, I think a primary source is uh, someone who was on the scene at the time. They were either someone who was in the Constitutional Convention, uh, or they helped prepare the documents for the Constitution, or they were a historian who uh, actually spoke with the people who prepared the Constitution versus a revisionist historian who gets everything secondhand. And uh, I just learned that if you want to know the truth, you'd have to go to the primary sources. It's like if you want to know the truth about the gospel, you got to go to the scriptures and the living prophets. And if you didn't go to the scriptures and the living prophets, you probably wouldn't get the true doctrine. Well, now, I'm surprised. I thought I could just Google and learn about the church from there. Yeah, well, we all know where that would lead you to uh, <laughs> 20 different opinions. <laughs> and we call it moral relativism. Yes, and certainly as a member of the church, if I started having questions about uh, the church, uh, the best place to go is obviously to Google and um, hear what the critics have to say about the church. <laughs> And that would give you one source. But the truth is you go to the scriptures and you go to the living prophets. And for history, you go to the primary sources, the men and women who were on the scene at the time. Well, you have a chapter on Columbus. And I think Columbus was a great man. It's pointed out in the uh, Book of Mormon uh, that uh, they talk about he was inspired by God. But what are your feelings about Columbus? Well, I, uh, I'd heard so many negative comments about Columbus. I didn't feel in my heart that was the case. I decided I would read all of the primary sources about Columbus that are in English, which included Columbus's diary, the biography by his son, contemporary historians such as Bartholomew Lacassus, Peter Martyr, Dr. Alvaro Chanka, and others. And when I did that, I found a completely different understanding of Columbus and the revisionist historians. I found that he was motivated by two primary sources. One, 
He was motivated to teach the Christian religion to all the inhabitants he would find. There's no doubt about that. It appears scores of time in his writing and the writing of contemporary historians. And secondly, he wrote back to the king and queen of Spain and said, I'd like you to use the prophets from the gold to reconquer Jerusalem so you can build a temple for the second coming of Christ. In fact, Carol Delaney, a Stanford professor, history professor, who's probably the lead historian in Columbus, wrote a book entitled Columbus, The Quest for Jerusalem, uh, supporting that that's what he wanted to do. In fact, she said, when I read the primary sources, I came to a completely different opinion of Columbus. I realized he had been maligned and accused of many things he had never done. But in truth, he loved the, uh, the indigenous people, and he was very kind and benevolent to them. Well, well, I thought he came over to get slaves and um, force the religion upon the, uh, the ignorant uh, Indians. But that's not the case. Well, I, I wish we had time to go through each chapter because each one, I think, is so important. Um, another one I want to touch upon is the Declaration of Independence. I believe it is a sacred document, and I think it was divinely inspired. And I know you mentioned that in the book, but what do you have to say about that chapter, if you wanted to summarize it? Well, I think that, uh, and I, I do believe it was divinely inspired, and I think in that process, I think it was President Irene who once said, he asked President Lee, how do you get revelation? He said, you got to do your homework first. And I think they did their homework. They studied uh, about uh, the democracies of Greece and Rome, British constitutionalism. They looked at the constitutions of their colonies that existed. I think they did their homework and then they sought the Lord's help and he inspired this incredible group of men of whom Thomas Jefferson was the author, but certainly he was getting input from others to talk about uh, our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that document captures the human purpose and goals as well as any single document in the history of all mankind. Yes, and other countries have copied it. Yes, that and our Constitution. Yes, yes. Um, although they take some important parts out of it <laughs> when they copy it. <laughs> but uh, it, it is something that is held up uh, by a lot of countries. And um, the, these founding fathers, Madison, Jefferson, um, Benjamin Franklin, um, People today, they say, well, they weren't good men. They were slave owners. Um, my first wife, who was a historian and taught uh, advanced placement history, she told me, she says, if Thomas Jefferson had given away all of his slaves, he wouldn't have had the stature he needed to be part of a government to be able to write the document. Let's see. Well, 
You know, I, I think even if they made errors, which they did, all of them, you can imagine what it would be if I only told you these three things about a New Testament character. If I told you this man cut off the ear of the high priest's servant, which would be a felony in our day and age. This man denied knowing the Savior after having walked with him daily, denied him three times. And on one occasion, the Savior said to him, get behind me, Satan. What would you think about that man? Not very well. Not very well. But if that's all you focused on, you would have missed the real man, his mission and his mark in life. The man who had angelic visitations, the man who raised the dead and the lame, the man who gave his very life or the savior. If you take those few isolated instances and uh, don't weigh them against the totality of his life, you've missed the mark. That's what happens to the founding fathers. They take one isolated part of his life Mm -hmm. and they miss the man and his mark. And uh, that's what the critics do. They focus on the warts and the blemishes and God focuses on the strengths and beauties and then is able to use them to produce these incredible works. They were very well read and very intelligent men, and I think definitely gifted by Heavenly Father. That's so true. They were extremely well, well read, and uh, they had a belief in God. They were able to combine that intellect with the spirit to come up with this constitution, which was ingenious. When you start thinking about the executive and the legislative and the judicial branches, and you think about we the people, not we the academics, not we the the kings, and you think about the division of power between the federal government and the states, and that we need a moral people to uh, enforce these laws. They were not just brilliant. Other men have been brilliant. They were inspired. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They formed a constitutional republic. But unfortunately, most people today I hear refer to our government as a democratic government. Yes, in truth, it is a constitutional republic. And I think with good intent, they refer to it as a democracy. But in truth, it is exactly, as you said, a constitutional republic. Well, you you talk about morality a lot. And why why do we need to be a moral people to be able to to have the country and keep the country we have? Well, that's a very good question and a very important one. And it was because the Constitution was based upon moral principles. And where did they get those moral principles? From the Bible. In fact, you may know that David Lutz, professor at history at the University of Houston, did a study and he took all of the writings of the founding fathers between 1760 and 1805. And then he categorized all the quotes that they had in their writings. 34% of their quotes were from the Bible. Wow. The next highest percent was 8 point some percent of Montesquieu. Then it went down to Locke and Blackstone, then Locke and Hume. 
the moral values of the Bible became the moral guideline for the Constitution. And they knew that the only way those moral values could be maintained is if you had a moral people. And the only way you could have a moral people is if they were a religious people, because that was the prime source for teaching morals. And a religious people were the ones who sought the will of God. And where did they find the will of God? But in the Bible. That's why they were such great students of the Bible. I'm trying to remember who said that if we, if we lose our morality, it was one of the founding fathers, they established a government and one of them said, if we can hold on to it. And I can't remember who said it, but yeah. one of them... Well, Benjamin Franklin was one who talked about our republic, if we can hold on to okay. it. And John Adams was someone who talked about the Constitution will only survive if you have a moral and religious people. And then Alexander Hamilton said, morality will fall without religion. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got other chapters on socialism. <laughs> I, I do not understand when I hear somebody talk about socialism and that we need to move the United States. In fact, I read in the New York Times that uh, some woman just came out with um, new socialism, that we need to move the country to new socialism. There is no proven record that socialism even works. And they feel that if they keep tweaking it somehow, it will someday work. And <laughs> I'm not always sure how to answer somebody like that. But you talk about socialism. You talk about the importance of capitalism. Capitalism is not an evil. Yes, there's certainly bad parts to it. But isn't that the case with everything? Nothing is absolutely pure unless we talk about the Savior. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it's an important comment, but capitalism is the best system we have, I think, to uh, foster self-reliance, to foster ingenuity, and to foster economic well-being, as has been proved by history. Like you mentioned, what, where has socialism or communism ever worked? And people think by tweaking it a little bit, they're going to make it work, but it's never going to work socialism. It's based on the incorrect principles. It takes away self-reliance. It takes away self-initiative. <laughs> takes away ingenuity. It takes away all those principles that are basis for a sound economic system. Well, I know one group when socialism or communism uh, benefits, and that's the people at the very top. Yes. <laughs> that's why People like it. Yeah, they, they do quite well. <laughs> well, I want to get in another subject here that seems like it's on the news almost every day, and that's same sex and the LBGTQ. And you have a chapter on, has God spoken about same-sex relations and marriage? Well, has he? He definitely has. We, uh, we have scriptures in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, multiple scriptures that talk about same-sex relations were an evil. We have the early Christian writers that surprised me who wrote between about 70 AD and 325 AD, who repeatedly speak, they're called the Anti-Nicene Fathers, 
who repeatedly speak of the evils of same-sex relations. We have reformers who spoke on the subject. We have modern-day prophets who've spoken on the subject. And we have the family proclamation, which is not a social policy, as President Oaks has told us on twice, two occasions now in conference, but is irrevocable doctrine that uh, God has spoken, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And as the church has said, we love everybody. We love everybody who has same-sex feelings, but we don't endorse same-sex expression. And uh, somehow I think love has two components. One, love is uh, recognizing somebody and acknowledging them as a child of God is the first component. But the second component is encouraging them to do all within their power to fulfill their potential as a child of God. And they do that as they keep the commandments. And I don't think we do people a service or demonstrate love when we encourage them or endorse same-sex relations because we prevent them from reaching their full potential as a child of God. So I think there's a balance to love them as an individual, but encourage them to live the commandments to become more like God. I agree with um, Elder Holland. Um, he said his heart goes out to these people that have these feelings. Yes. And I would imagine it's very difficult to have these feelings and yet want to um, uh, exercise what, what you feel you, you have the right to do. And it's very difficult. And that leads to another chapter that you have about help for those with same-sex feelings. And what I like is that you actually went to people I was always curious how you found the people, but you went to people who um, have these feelings and the different ways that they have dealt with it. First, first of all, where did you find these people? Well, um, one was an extended family member. Another was a, an author that I had met that had written a book on the subject. One was one of our missionaries when I was a mission president. Hmm. And so just various aspects of, of my experience in life that I met people who, and you're right, these are children of God. They're very good people. But uh, I think somehow that uh, rather than just enduring it, they can actually use it to make it a strength in their life. For example, we have some women in our state who are single sisters in their 30s or 40s. And somehow, as trying as that has been for them, they've used that to make it a strength in their life, to develop their faith and to rely more on God than ever before. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I don't think anybody in life has an easy life whether they have a disability or a, or a, some kind of weakness. The Lord says, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble before me. And if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. 
And I believe that because I've seen that happen in our own family, particularly with one of our own children. I just, it's not something I think about a lot. Um, I've had uh, in my family, uh, a sister of mine or a sister-in-law of mine that was in a same-sex marriage. And this goes back 20, 30 years and she's no longer with us. She passed away. Um, a sweet woman and we loved her dearly. And, um, but it was always a, a subject I never quite knew how to approach. And I even asked my wife the, the other day, in fact, I, I interviewed a, another author for Cedar Fort um, that talks about uh, love and, and uh, same-sex marriages and everything. And I said, if in our family we were invited to a wedding, do we go? And I don't have the answer. And my wife says, I think, I guess it's something we'd have to pray about. Because I feel that when you go, you're supporting it. Yet I care about the person. Yes. Those are difficult questions. And I don't know the answer. And maybe it's different, different in different cases, mm -hmm. depending upon the relationship with the person. Yes. Well, your 18th chapter. I love that. It says the sacred cement of society. What is that? Well, Benjamin Franklin used that phrase and he said the sacred cement of society is the family. And I believe that. I, I think we try to have a lot of short-term cures for the problems in our society. And I'm not saying short-term cures don't have their place. But the long-term cure is to strengthen the family and marriages. So we're raising children in righteousness. And you think if we did have righteous parents and they did teach them correct moral principles, how much crime and looting uh, and <clears throat> other evils would we have today would be greatly reduced if we just strengthen the family. To me, that is the key to law and order and happiness in society. Well, in your 19th chapter, you say, what else can be done to preserve our moral values? And I think it's a great question. What are your answers to that or your feelings? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, parents need to teach moral values to their children. I think uh, just like we have in the church, it's uh, home-centered and church-supported. I think it should be home-centered and government-supported in terms of strengthening the family. I think we can do a much better job of teaching morals in schools. The purpose of education is not just information, but President McKay said to develop character. And I think that our schools could do a much better job in teaching integrity, Judeo-Christian values on which the Constitution was built, eliminating pornography from our schools, um, 
I think those, I think the government could even uh, institute programs to, uh, and ads and, and programs to teach parents how to be good spouses, how to be good parents, and focus some of their efforts on that. And it would do a world of good in terms of educating parents how to be good spouses and good parents and emphasize the need for it in our country. Those are great items. And especially when you talk about school. Um, I taught school for about 15 years. That was my last occupation. I taught the deaf and hard of hearing, uh, mid middle school and high school. I, I feel for the teachers today. Uh, a lot of them are in a very awkward situation. But I, I'm finding that school itself, they're not teaching them to think. And they're not asking questions. And they just put forth information and that information is correct. And uh, you don't question it. And yet um, the greatest value, even in studying the scriptures, is finding the questions and searching for the answers. I think that's true. And I, I think we've tried to become so politically correct that in the process we've diluted the truth. You know, we, we can't even call it Christmas holidays. It's got to be just a holiday season. Yes. Or can't be Columbus Day. It has to be Indigenous Day. Yes. Yes. Or it can't be Easter, it's, uh, you know, spring vacation. Yes. And so on all of these things were kind of diluting the truth for political correctness. Yep, I, I agree. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you for your time. Um, it is a great book. I want to encourage people to get the book. Um, now, I am new as a podcaster for Cedar Fort. Um, I haven't told people, but I'm not getting paid by them. I am doing this uh, the kindness of my heart because I feel that these books need to be, um, people need to know about these books and about the authors. And um, I just think it's a, a great book, and I just want to encourage our listeners to get that book, or they can listen to it. I think it's also available on Kindle. And they can get it in all different forms. And, of course, your other book, The Infant Atonement and um, Teaching with Power. Uh, great books. And, oh, A Case for the Book of Mormon. Oh, that was good. <laughs> that was really good. Okay. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us with Cedar Fort. And um, you have a great day. Same to you. Thanks so much, Dr. Bernard. Tad's books are available at Cedar Fort. Com, DeseretBooks.com, and, of course, on Amazon. Your support means the world to us, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to give it a thumbs up and share your uplifting comments. By doing so, you will help others discover this podcast and join our growing community of listeners. Lastly, don't forget to explore the other podcast I host, The Busy Latter-day Saint. In each episode, I have the privilege of interviewing incredible members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from all around the world who share their personal experiences and unique insights on Scripture study.
The podcast is spiritually uplifting and a treasure trove of different approaches to studying the scriptures.